So here we are once again back at our little Velo Sound podcast with, um, yeah, one of my favorite voices from the American West Coast. And I would even say maybe the, uh, the one that I like most from San Francisco. Um, so Eugene, I know you were born in, um, in, on the East Coast, if I remember correctly, but all yep. your work basically is based in or around San Fran. Is that right? Correct. The only work I did before I left uh, before I left New York, I was writing before. I was getting published before with the writing, mm -hmm. uh, and that started when I was about fourteen. But uh, but yeah, I didn't do music, and I did I did commercials and modeling and stuff like that when I was in high school to make money. But um, uh, nothing nothing with music before then, outside of seeing lots of it. So yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. So, but that has changed a few years ago because you are now in a transcontinental or should we even say intercontinental band? Because um, you are part of a band called Bunuel. Um, mm -hmm. We'll also talk about where the name comes from. But um, how is it working or how is it being in a band that is on two continents? Yeah, yeah. Um... Well, there are two stages of being in a band, or maybe there are multiple stages of being in a band. There's like the stage you get in when you're, you know, in a teenager in your 20s, where you imagine like your band is your gang and you're going to do everything together and hang out together. And, you know, even on occasion in the early days of Oxbow, you know, Nico and I lived in the same house, you know. So, um, this, but, you know, time passes and pretty much it, it is more about intent and less about proximity mm -hmm. and uh realistically speaking this is no different from anything else i've done right it, i mean we don't all live in san francisco i think nico is the only member of oxbow who lives in san francisco um and then increasingly i found friends in other other bands who don't even live in the same state anymore um you know like uh i mean quite a few bands actually doing your escape plan those guys are all different places and Converge and the guys in Neurosis and Isis and so well now Sumac, so um, there's certain benefits to being close by, and those are very specific, having to do with um, rehearsal. Yeah. Um, but I found touring with Boonwell completely interesting, and I had friends back in the early '80s who would practice via cassette tape, and uh, one. I'm, he's dead now. I won't, won't make mention of his name, but they used to pass cassette tapes back and forth. This was a hardcore band, and it was partially because the guy was bipolar and couldn't really manage the effort to show up to practice on time. Mm. But it, they were a great band, and it really worked well for them. So this is a, a modern variation of that. Sure. Um, and typically with the Boonwell tours, because we've done two or three, maybe even at this point, I'll fly, I'll land. We'll play, <laughs> but what we do before is decide on the set. Mm -hmm. We listen to the music intensively, and then we play that set every single night during that tour. And it develops coloration. It, it, I never thought that would really work, and it absolutely doesn't work for Oxo Oxbow, but it totally works for Boone Well. And so each night is like this high wire act of just trying to trying to hit the right emotional tone and timbre as well as the notes. And it's just like, it's like war, <laughs> you know, like everything is happening so fast all at the same time. 
that it's really hard to get a hold of and it could easily spin out of control. Uh, whereas Oxbow is very much intuitive. Like we know the song so well, we have a song book of like 80 songs and we typically don't write the set list until m minutes before we played. We tried the other way with Oxbow. We tried to just do the same set t two nights in a row and that was a miserable failure. It did it just, our, our attention spans were not in the right place. It didn't work, but in, you know, God, it's amazing how, how well it works for Boonwell. It really does. So nothing has changed when I do vocals. I don't see the band when I do vocals anyway, so nothing's changed for me. Yeah, I can imagine. You you just in some ways connected Bunuel to war. And that is one of the first impressions that I always have when listening to Bunuel records. It's mm. so much happening and sometimes I have a feeling that it's like a blitzkrieg attack, you know, it's like mm -hmm. so much is that and, and in some ways it reminds me of like earlier stuff that you did with oxbow and earlier stuff that even before oxbow you did with whipping boy is that something that also attracts you like the, the war thing about it like this very physical very muscular music whereas oxbow is still muscular but i think it's like a little bit more intellectual a little bit more well I, the comparison i i've made is that is that oxbow is, is like a documentary yeah and, and bunuel is like like a film and and um it, it, hence the name as well right with we'll come to that. yeah and i i think the the closest thing like I, i've studied martial arts you know, almost my entire life right and then they created this thing called mixed martial arts was everything all mixed together and about 20 years ago i decided i actually had to do it i really wanted to do it Kristen von till from neurot records uh found some secret fight club thing and said, Eugene, you got to do this. And so, you know, I went, they, you had to call a phone number and then they sent you to another pay phone. It was all a secrecy and you show up and you had to fight. And one thing, I mean, I competed in, in you know, I competed in wrestling and I competed in, in, you know, karate and all these different, but mixed martial arts, I remember the first, I got knocked out the first night I was there, knocked out and then choked out. And I remembered that it was so incredibly fast. I mean, the only other experience I have to compare it to was being in a race car. And the guy in the race car told me, you need to look down there when we race. I'm like, yeah, whatever. I've been driving since I was 13. I don't need advice from this guy. And I looked at normal distance in front of the car and the information was coming into my brain. Once you cross 200 miles an hour, yep. the information comes into your brain so fast that everything started to melt. I mean, literally, like yep. you were watching a paint, a wax painting. And I was passing out and the guy shook me awake and said, you know, pointed downfield and said, look, and I looked way down at the end of the track and then everything came back to me. So, you know, there are a lot of reasons why Bunuel feels that way to me, but more, and all of it comes from not being as conversant with the players as I am with the members of Oxbow, right? Mm -hmm. um, you, you know, we've toured together, but I don't have a, a, a long, long history with these guys. So my expectation of what they're going to do musically is, I mean, it is really, it is really like a high wire act. I can't, I can reasonably predict what Dan is going to do, what Nico's going to do, what Greg is going to do. And this is why, you know, when our, our improv stuff is always so fun to do because it's like, you know, you may not have liked the Grateful Dead, but 
if you play together for 30 years, there's certain things that happen. But when you take really great musicians who haven't played together, it's maybe like where jazz was in the in the 60s or 70s when people discovered, you know, harmelodics, where it's really incredibly, if you have the strength and the discipline to hold it together, it can be really fascinating for me as a vocalist, especially to try to pull off, you know, um, I mean, it, 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 it's like it's like a, a good horror movie where they, they talk about camera placement in, in horror movies. And they said, if the camera shows you where the character is going, you're not surprised. That doesn't develop. But if the camera sits behind your protagonist and follows him, you have no idea what's in the next frame. And that's how I feel singing, singing with Boonwell. <laughs> I don't know. From when they send me the music to when I sit down to write the lyrics to when I go to the studio to record the vocals, it's a lot of big, giant question marks, all kind of cohering around you know, my desire for emotional focus, which is like, how am I feeling about this? So. But you record your vocals in an American studio, right? And then it I record my vocals with the same guy who's crafted, who's been like my, my vocal craftsman for every single solo project thing I've done this Monty Valier, yeah. um, who runs Ruminator, uh, 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 studios in San Francisco. And he used to play uh, bass in that band Swell. That was his his big mm -hmm. uh, claim to fame. Okay. And he's paid, you know, got a really good sense of, of, I mean, probably his sense of what my voice does and needs to do is right up there with Joe Ciccarelli's. It, it's it, it's really pretty significant. So, um, so whether it's the Juju stuff I, I, that I, I done with Jamie Stewart, the Salminio thing, or you know, any of these other projects that have gained sort of uh, old man gloom. Monty has been the one who's been in charge of organizing the, the technical aspect of what it sounds like. So, so yeah, I've, I've recorded them all at the same place. Did he also record your wife for this new Boonwell record? Yes, he did. And, and he did the first two records as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, and um He didn't record her band. Her band is uh, Maneki Necro. That was done in, in uh, Poland uh, uh, at a at a great studio called Monroe Sound, where again a guy who's really dialed into her vocals. Um, but Monty did do her vocals. Yeah. When I listen to Bunuel, I I always have a feeling as if I'm listening to free band or free genres at the same time. It's like yeah. I, there is a third that is post punk. There is a third that is industrial. And there is a third of noise rock. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that, or am I totally on the wrong track there? No, no, I, 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 I don't feel bothered by that characterization. Uh, I mean, initially, where Pier Paolo Capovia from One Dimensional Man reached out to me about doing this thing, um, he expressed an allegiance to a lot of post-punk bands that we're all familiar with, right? Like Big Black, Shellac, and so on. And I, I heard that in the music. So this would be a resting place for strangers. But it gave me a great opportunity because I've loved that music. Um, but and I'm, you know, I'm a known associate of the guy largely responsible for a lot of that music, Steve Albini. But um, Albini's vocals work for him. But there became um, there, there started to be the school of Albini vocals. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah and where it was this kind of ironic detachment thing right and i i enjoyed it from steve 
I did not enjoy it three or four generations in. So when they sent me this music that sounded like that, I was like, now's my chance, you know, to to take that. I mean, I love, I love Shellac, love Big Black. I love Albini's vocals and him. But I listen to music and I go, well, if I was singing it, I would have done it this way. (laughs) Of course. course. (laughs) And, and, and when, when you have that kind of gap, that's when you go, ah, yeah, okay. Maybe this is a project I should do. Um, because what I do with Bunuel on a resting place for strangers is do what I hear when I heard them. Like when I said, ah, they should really do this. That's what I do. <laughs> yeah, there, there, is, there is nobody that you have to substitute because you are. Yeah. Right. Correct. Correct. Well, when, when we are talking about Bunuel um, and, and the namesake for it, I guess we're talking about Louis and, yes. and not about the other two. Uh, following him. I mean, like, we're not talking about his son or his grandson, who are also directors, right? Correct. It's Luis. And, and like, then, of course, the question comes up, like, why Bunuel? Um, I, well, I, uh, I like the sound of the word. Um, it, you know, a, a friend a friend of mine named their band, inspired, I, I would guess, by us choosing Bunuel, named their band Von Stroheim. And I was like, ah, it doesn't too much <laughs> von stroheim uh, you know uh bunuel has got a nice has flow the, to it bunuel, yeah, it's uh, and i'm having a lot of american journalists who are having a hard time pronouncing it <laughs> you know but it starts it starts it started with me with with the movies right and uh primarily the movies and there was always a weird sense of uh disquietude watching watching the movies and not what you would expect given his fellow travelers right mm-hmm. um i mean i don't know you know i mean it's it's unfair to say so but latter day latter day dolly who i crossed paths with right i was alive when he was alive yeah uh, had become we a, both a, were. yeah okay I mean, good i, I yeah, was right. a child you're a little older but yeah no i mean i remember him hanging out like studio 54 and stuff and and he had become sort of a figure of fun you know kind of a yeah. uh, but a lot of these guys were, were were not, you know, they were very serious cats and, and serious in a, in a weird way, too. Mm. If, I mean, I don't want to get into it because it's a really major diversion. But, you know, Mar- Marcel Duchamp, mm. his name has come up in a lot of weird places. Specifically, I'm talking about the Black Dahlia murder case. I got to yeah, get that. Down that, that rabbit like hole. one of those figures of a 20th century where if you dive into them, it's like a kaleidoscope of the 20th century. Oh, yes, exactly. With the same level of brutality and so forth. I mean, it's the weird thing. I mean, you know, I like Rousseau. And then you dig a little deeper and find out Rousseau was a complete piece of shit, you know, as a human being. So I, I don't say this about Bunuel, but I say that there was an edge to his movies that I, I think has largely been overlooked. And I think that's what I was, I was clued. Um, that's what I was cluing in on. And I think that's what I wanted to evoke, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, as evidenced by the covers, you know, as evidenced by the titles and and and, and the lyrical impact, which to me is always about this kind of, in the instance of Buell, about this kind of dichotomy between, you know, how things appear and um, and how they, how they are. Yeah, and I, between, I can, yeah, yeah. I, there's a great kids book, you know, I've got four kids. Uh, my, my oldest are all, uh, you know, like in their twenties. 
but my youngest is like uh, uh, 18 months old and she's got this book <laughs> and it's called, for the life of me, I, it's called Good Night, Good Night Construction Site. <laughs> and it's a great book, but for like in, to use to use Leonard Cohen's phrase, if there doesn't seem to be the the scintilla of of foreboding and sinister anonymity that goes along with that title, I just can't hear it any other way. And of course, you know the kids, the the, the bulldozers going to sleep, and the dump truck is going to sleep, yeah. and the you know there's all these kind of kid tropes. But I'm like, good night, good night, construction site. That doesn't sound good to me at all. <laughs> you know. But oh man, I I had a guy take me to a construction site late at night once, and uh, it's he, a crazy uh, place, right? Yeah, man. He jumped out of the car, and he gave me a bag, a sandwich bag, <laughs> and he said, "I'll be back. Don't open this unless you have to." And I could tell that there was no sandwich in that sandwich bag. I was like, fuck, I can't leave. He took the keys. I'm stuck in this construction site with something in a sandwich bag. You know, and he came back 15 minutes later and we got out of there and never spoke of it again. So, yeah, <laughs> construction sites make me uneasy. Yeah. That was, but that was back in New York, right? No, no, man. That was in California and that wasn't all that long ago. <laughs> No, no, not anymore. Yeah. <laughs> do, do, do you have like any favorite movie by Benoit? Um, no, no, no. They're all, he, he's not my favorite filmmaker also, incidentally, by the way. Um, but um, but no, I've, this is the, I've enjoyed them all similarly, uh, which I can't, let me, let me talk about how I think about uh, favorite. Like in, if you have movies I feel okay about in average, but you have a really stellar one. I know that the lightning in the bottle, that something really special happened and it elevates it for me more so than if all of your movies are great. If all your movies are great, then ah, it's hard for me to, to have you as my favorite because you're just, it's like Martin Amos as a writer. I've not read anything he's done that's been shitty. So it's got great. You know, you like Martin Amos? Yeah, he's great. What's your favorite? This is just great. It's like, he's a great, it's like, it's, if there were bad ones, I could talk about him being great. Uh, Joseph Joseph Lucy is mm-hmm. probably his most of his work has been eh, not as eh, not right. It's been good, but a movie like The Servant for me is is so complete and so fantastic. It could be that it was written by Pinter, it, you know, it was adapted by uh, by Robin Mom, you know, uh, um, Somerset Mom's uh, nephew, I think it was. I don't know what it was, but that was just a phenomenal piece of work. So that would be my favorite movie. And because of it, Lu- Lucy would be my favorite director. Okay. It's interesting. So it sounds as if you're rather one of those, I'd rather explode than fade away guys. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. That's, that's a good way to put it. I mean, I, I, I'd rather be judged on an absolute work of genius than a steady career of good stuff. <laughs> right. Which is interesting because I think a lot of people would consider you in the category with with basically all your bands. Um, Yeah, I know, but that's would consider you in a category where they would say like the guy has a source for lightning in a bottle. Well, well, that's kind of what what drives me, right? The the idea that 
you know, that you want to do that work that, it, I mean, you know, when they talk about magnum opus, if that's what you want to do, like everything has been good, good. Everything's been really good. Like I, you know, I enjoy all the Oxbow records. I enjoy all the Boone Rell records, but you want to do that kind of, you want to craft that piece of work. That's like, you know, to use the common parlance, that's like that mic drop piece of work where you show people like, that's it. That's it. <laughs> no, this is like, oh, the Sistine Chapel. Fuck it. That guy could come in here and shit on the floor. What? I, I, I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. It's just, you know, this work will extend itself through the ages. That's what you're looking for. And that's kind of why I'm still doing it, I think. Which we are totally thankful for. But I would, <laughs> I, I would still argue from the other side. Coming yeah. back to Benoel um, and to the sound of a band. Mm -hmm. um, I, I sometimes have a feeling as if I'm listening to a a very modern and even a little bit more aggressive version of a birthday party who mm -hmm. are like one of those bands bands, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people refer to the birthday party if you are a band and you're in a band like, oh, you should have listened to the birthday party. You, you must know Hamlet and their version of it. And it's mm -hmm. like the same. I so, sometimes feel as if a lot of people talk the same way about Bunuel. You know, it's like um, a director's director. Yeah. Yeah. There's, 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 I have a strange relationship with the cave, you know, strange non-relationship relationship. I, I'd seen him on uh, uh, From Her to Eternity tour in San Francisco, must have been 83. Um, Barry Adamson up on bass at the time. And um, I, I, there was something really special about that moment. And there were, there've been subsequent really special moments. Mm, and, but my appreciation for the man has ebbed and flowed. And it, it, it's ebbed in, in, in a space where I start to feel that he's jaggerizing. Something mm -hmm. that a, a word I use with, with Mick Jagger, who, you know, I like the Rolling Stones well enough, but about half the time, I feel like, to use the expression, Jagger's putting me on, right? It's like stereotypical cliche stuff, right? Yeah, like uh, the girl with faraway eyes, that mm -hmm. Rolling Stones song, you know, where he's doing this whole, I'm listening to country radio, and, you know, I just think it would have been a much more powerful much more powerful rendering without all that ham theatricality, <laughs> which is a phrase that Simon Reynolds used to describe the very first Oxbow show he saw. And it completely changed my, my, my understanding of how I viewed Oxbow shows. It's really powerful. And I really instantaneously understood what he was talking about. And so there are elements of that where I feel that Cave has gotten lost and he's, he's done that. And then there's like super heartfelt elements where he just, where it's just it, it, it's been great, but I, I didn't think at all um, about about birthday party when um, we were doing any Bunuel stuff. But I would be complete, I, and I understand that you weren't making that connection. But um, but it, so you know, would you, you agree it, that Bunuel is like a director's director? Yeah, a lot of directors but, know him, but nobody outside of that, or not at least a lot but, of people. But you know that. That's been my thing. I mean, I'm super into uh, this guy named Johnny Hartman, 
there's certain certain type of, of vocalist, Arthur Prysock, Billy Eckstein, who was the most popular, and 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 uh, um, and uh, uh, Johnny Hartman, and um, you know, people would come to see him play. Like um, Sinatra would bring Dean Martin, and they would come. He was like the singer, singer, and he never really, you know, he never really hit big. But all these big guys, I mean, I, I kind of wonder why they didn't actually help him. That maybe there was a character issue involved. But his stuff was when he just, again, he's that type of guy. Like his great stuff is mic drop great. Like you just, it, it's otherworldly. Um, but he never attained. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm comfortable with that characterization. <laughs> again, which is, which is, you know, if I had to choose between Johnny Hartman and, um, you know, I'm always more of a Dean Martin guy than Frank. You know, I think I, I'd like the, the public acclaim that goes with a Dean, but the, the critical acclaim is, is something that uh, that makes me feel like I'm not wasting my time. And that's important. If I felt like I was wasting my time, I would stop and do something else. You know, when when I think of like Buñuel, it's also very often the cinematographical aspect, you know, like there is something special about his work. And that is not, for example, to me, it's not very often in in the story, but very often mm -hmm. in the kind of pictures he did mm -hmm. in his movies. Mm -hmm. Would you say that you are painting pictures with your lyrics? Oh, clearly, I mean, super clearly, that hundred percent. And the difference is, say, between what happens with Oxbow, whereas Oxbow's song cycle started with Fuckfest and ended, um, or, or will end with Love's Holiday. That's the entire song cycle and you know we've talked about it as a band and and uh you know uh the land beyond love's holiday is terra on you know terra incognito i, I no idea with with uh Bunuel, um a, a couple of things happened uh, one of the things that happened is um i was paying attention to how my kids listen to music mm -hmm and uh they don't know albums from shit, right like it's an old guy conceit to think about music in, in terms of albums right uh where why you could take bother? yeah how, what's that why ever bother yeah yeah because that's not how you know that's not what your algorithm serves you that's not what comes up and it's not you know individual songs so then i start to think i start to think about weird stuff i start to think about the tetragrammaton like the the four-letter name of God that you know when it was spoken, created you know the creation burst forth, and I said you know I shouldn't have to. Maybe it's a weakness to have a narrative through line from song to song. I mean, each song should be maybe representative of the whole, and uh, and so I started to think about things differently. I started to think about things maybe in terms of uh, like Rashomon, right? or the Wallace Stevens poem about the multiple ways to look at a blackbird. So really each song has the entire story in it. <laughs> so you don't need to. So that's a page from the book that if you don't even read the rest of the book, you understand the book. And that's kind of how I approach the lyrical writing in Bunuel. Yeah, it's like a little bit like the Nick Adams cycle of Hemingway. Uh, you can read every story for yourself, but there is yep. an yep. ongoing cycle. Correct. Yeah. Exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's so, a great rep. Yeah. In, indirectly or in, interestingly, sorry, a lot of people when, when talking about Bunuel, um, 
you know there are always like basically like two sides of criticism or critics mm -hmm. uh, coming forward to Bunuel. Either they love him for mm -hmm. whatever he did, or they call him subversive, scandalous, mm -hmm. uh, artsy fartsy, however you want to name it. You're talking about the director or the band? The director, not the band. The band <laughs> is awesome. <laughs> but my like, question yeah, is, okay. the question is, was, question is like, I'm 100% I'm sure you were aware of that. Uh, is that also some kind of like hidden interest in how people respond to your band, if you call it? Uh, or if you name it after a director that has been called subversive and scandalous? Or is it just the onomatopoeic effect of... Binary? No, I mean, part of it, part of it, you know, was for, you know, there's certain things that, I mean, I'm largely a very difficult person to offend, but there's certain things and characterizations that sloppy journalism has started to chafe. And, uh, and, and one of the things that started to chafe me over the course of time was this generalized idea that I was kind of like, uh, like Anki do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which you might have to explain for our non-American listeners. Um, <laughs> well, um, uh, help me with this. I, I, I don't know how to explain, uh, you know, the, 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 the kind of wild man automaton, right? That there's like, there's all this musically sophisticated stuff out and then, um, and then, you know, then there's this crazy shit happening up front. And, um, you know, I've had interviewers ask questions at me versus asking me questions. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it started to, um, I remember a line, Dylan's line, one of my favorite lines from, I think it's Don't Look Back, where he said, you know, I could sing better than Caruso if I wanted to. I just don't want to. <laughs> now, I don't believe him for a second, but nah, the wanted to, the wanted to, the wanted to is important. Like, no, it's, Caruso is special. I, okay, granted. But this is the kind of thing, like, you know, you, you do realize that what happens at a Bunuel show, what happens vocally and lyrically is not an accident. It's not like, you know, I've had people ask me all the time, oh, you must have been really high out there. I, no, this is a lot of thought has gone into this. A lot of thought, <laughs> not accidents, you know. Um, but but so. those are also the same kind of people who think that whatever Dillinger Escape Plan did live was just chaos, which it's not. And the Correct. same thing is with Bunuel. The same thing is also with Aspo. Uh, lots of bands that you've mentioned. That those are bands that really took a lot of time. But the question is, you know, did did you play with this idea of naming your band after a sub, so-called subversive and scandalous director? Oh no, 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 no! In my head, that in my head that existed, but you know, I'm kind of sort of market tested the name. Just like talking to friends I know, and typically my friends are maybe in their 30s, and I drew zero notice. <laughs> like, people were like, who? I was like, hey, no, this director, and he directed these movies, and you... <laughs> and uh, so this is and like... you are the nerd to explain. Exactly. It was, <laughs> so it was not... If I would wanted to make that connection between subversiveness, that I, I knew before we chose that name that that was going to be completely lost. So um, it, but the reality of it is, if people, I was happy to have people hear the name, 
and then maybe reverse engineer it to where they got to the movies and go, wow, this shit's really subversive. I got why he chose the name. Okay. <laughs> did, right. did you notice anything different between, because that just crossed my mind. Did you notice anything different between European journalists and American journalists when it comes to the name of a band? Um, outside of the ability to pronounce the name, um, no. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, well, there's certain things like European journalists. I've spent a lot of time. If you read my Substack, you know where I'm about to go with this. I, I spent a lot of time um, talking about the cover. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And with American we'll, journalists, we'll it's like it's like <laughs> American journalists. It has not been a point of conversation at all. <laughs> you know. So, uh, so that's been a major difference, you know. And of course, as an American, I am completely surprised. I did not see that coming. <laughs> Even though the rest of the band was like, we don't like this as a cover. And I was like, you know the name of the record, right? You've read the lyrics. You do understand that it's dramatically, thematically, you know, theoretically consistent. And they're like, okay, yeah, you're right. All right. To, to maybe come to the point so that everybody understands what, Eugene and I are talking about the record for the new, the cover for the new record shows Eugene's 44 millimeter caliber gun. 44 caliber. What? Yeah, caliber. Yeah. I, yeah, I guess we would say millimeter, right? <laughs> and, and um, you know, you, you see it on the cover and you've spoken at length about your wife's reaction to the cover, your band's reaction to the cover. Mm. And you've also made it clear that I like one of the sentences, I'm trying to paraphrase it, where you say like, I'm totally fine with no American, or with all Americans giving up their guns. I just don't want to be the first one. <laughs> that was close. Just not me. <laughs> I know. Anybody but else? Like, in, indirectly, there is some hidden in there, right? Yeah, 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 and, yeah, yeah. Um, and now as a European, I have to say, I totally got the connection to the lyrics. Yep. Uh, I only have a question connected to it. I'm mean, like, the record makes sense in connection, the cover makes sense in connection to a record. The only question is, are you a killer? Well, let, let, let's go back through that. There's also another connection that, that you missed, right? And I would have to go back to Don Siegel. If your film knowledge is deep, Don Siegel uh, created <laughs> famous, you know, uh, which the star that gun was a star of his movie fundamentally, and the movie was called Dirty Harry, uh, yeah. where Clint Eastwood intoned, "Go ahead, this, punk, make my day." Now, before that, he goes, "But this is a forty-four Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and it could blow your head clean off." <laughs> I mean, there's this, so there was a Don Siegel uh, uh, callback in my mind, and it was significant that the that the bullets were on the table next to it because it doesn't you're unsure whether the bullets are going to go into the gun or whether they've been taken out of the gun. So in my mind, which I explained to the band at the time, that this was a dynamic cover and not a real, it wasn't like a still life. True. But in connection to being a killer, I don't believe I've killed anybody. I also think that it is a still life, our talking wise, but it mm -hmm. is a still life with two possible open ends, right? Correct. Which yeah, is that's, totally a, that's, a, that's a better way to put it. Right? Um, If I connect that to one of the lines in in, in the record, um, I am what living people fear. Um, 
I really like that line. I just don't know what to make of it. <laughs> is it you as a person or you as the kind of person you are? Let me, maybe more the second. Let me explain to you kind of where that came from. I remember back in the 80s, I, um, I contacted uh, Anton LaVey from the Church of Satan and uh, we, we did the interview which I published in my magazine, The Birth of Tragedy magazine. And, I, and I've written about it subsequently and then interviewed his grandson on, for my Substack and so on, making me a family familiar, I guess. But I saw him out very specifically because uh, for the evil issue um, of the magazine. And I wanted to talk to him. I, I thought that if anybody had a sense of evil, it might be him, right? Mm -hmm. And we played this, what amounted to a kind of a cat and mouse game where I kept saying, I kept hammering at him and like a you know real journalist, I would recycle back trying to recall. And then finally he said, okay, look, look, evil is what doesn't feel good. And I said, well, you know, a root canal doesn't feel good. I wouldn't call that evil, you know? And then he said, he just kind of paused and he looked at me and he said, hey, Eugene, I, I'm an atheist. You know, and uh, I'm just you know, trying to pay the rent. I mean, he fundamentally tapped out. So I was talking about something that I felt like I had a direct emotional connection to um, that I had felt moving within me and that I, I wanted to put a face and a name to that it seemed like if anybody would be able to do that or help with that process, it would be him. And it was clear to me that he didn't, you know, even though, you know, in the Substack that I do with his grandson, he raises... Uh, he clearly raises the possibility that Anton LaVey wasn't his grandfather, but was in actual fact his father, which means that Anton LaVey fucked his 13-year-old daughter and impregnated her with this guy who then later said, I don't know, is he my grandfather, my father? I don't know. So I, you know, and that's a level of evil, you know, I, I mean, I don't like, I'm not comfortable with the moral shadings, but I'm really not comfortable with, you know, pedophilia. So um, in this instance, you know, was he evil? I don't know. Right, let's let's get away from the discussion of evil and get focused back on this feeling that I was talking about, um, trying to get him to identify it, to figure out what was happening. You know, processionally, when I I, I start to feel the rising of this animal uh, uh, within me, and um, and I eventually just figured that it was a biological process because I couldn't find anybody who was able to to really, we really felt comfortable talking about it. I mean, the bad guys who I've consistently sought out my entire life um, didn't, they were all kind of functionalist, right? Yeah. I mean, they did what they did. I was paid. That's, I, they paid me to kill that guy, so I killed that guy. Yeah, yeah. Or I was pay, drinking. Pay, payment takes away moral judgment. It, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, it, there was, they had no, there was no emotional content to them being a bad guy. It was just, yeah. You know, maybe that's like hydric, right? There's no emotional content. It's just I got to clean this stuff up. This is how I'm choosing to do it. Whatever. I don't. There's no moral content for me here. But so I never actually got that answer. So I fundamentally figured out it was probably just a biological thing. It's just the way you're wired, you know. And me calling it evil was because I had no, you know, societal context to to place it in. And I'm talking specifically about this this you know feeling of bloodlust that <laughs> that. And it's only, of course, it doesn't hit me when I'm standing in line at the supermarket or or, you know, at a parent-teacher conference at school, but it very did, very clearly did, you know, when I'm engaged in physical conflict with another human being, you know, it, it very definitely, you could feel it 
making its presence known. So then the question, I think, to turn it around and 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 do the good journalism thing. Mm -hmm. um, are you using those martial arts experiences and jujitsu lessons and fights? Are you using that in order to not feel that no. bloodlust in no. what, what, in well, line at the cashier? Well, you you touch on something that's kind of a smart way to think about it. And I had all my kids have all taken martial arts from the time they were born uh, up until. I was a fascist about it till I got to high school. And then I was like, okay, you're 14, you can choose. And then they all went, I have all daughters and they all became uh, wrestlers, went to the state championships. And so then they graduated and they didn't pursue it in college. I was fine. You had martial arts from four to 18. You got enough to be able to defend yourself. But more importantly, what I wanted was like, and this is something, nothing that you can teach or impart is that moment when you're called upon to do this stuff and you realize I've got nothing. <laughs> like if I give you, if I say, here's some money, here's the money I owed you, add it together and subtract, give me back what I'm owed. You have a fundamental basis for being able to do this. You understand math. You say, okay, I'll take the four, I'm subtract the two. And, you know, somebody says, get the fuck out of my way. You know, if you've grown up in a decent household, you don't know how to handle this, you know? So, so for my kids, Fighting was always was always purely technical, which puts them sort of at a disadvantage because what they the, the animal thing that drove me to start doing martial arts is being confronted with somebody who really wanted to hurt me. And that's something my kids, because it's all technical for them, don't have the experience. And I think it's much more powerful to have both. So it's not like I'm taking using the martial arts to 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 quell the bloodlust. I, I, I'm using the martial arts as a as a kind of firewall, you know. Um, I mean, I'm fundamentally a really gentle guy and was a really gentle kid, but that's not what this late '70s in New York was about. So it was a firewall between me and the rest of the world, right? Um, and also, I'm a big mouth, so I didn't like the idea of being motivated by fear. If I wanted to say something, there's only one time, and I wrote about this that I chose not to. And some mafia guy, I used to work out in this mafia gym. Some guy was having a, a steroid rage. He was a mafia enforcer guy. And uh, he was screaming like crazy at his training partner. And I, I, his training partner was terrified. And everybody in the room was terrified. I didn't like it. And so I said, ladies, ladies, please. And he swung on me, he turned, he goes, and he picked up a hundred pound you know, plate, the big barbell, the yeah. weight plate. And he was waving it around like a dinner plate. And he goes, one more peep out of you and I will crack your fucking skull. I knew he was 100% correct. But it took everything in my power not to go peep. Yeah, <laughs> just, to, yeah, yeah. just to see what <laughs> I spent my whole life training for those moments. So I could say peep. You don't like what I've said? What are you going to do about it? <laughs> but in that instance, when I weighed 200, I weighed 165 pounds. And this guy weighed 265 pounds. And he was in the mafia, and there was nobody who was going to stop him in this grubby basement in Brooklyn. And man, I ran away to live and lift another day. I said nothing. <laughs> I and I remember it like it was yesterday, and it bugs me, but I still know that was a smart move. <laughs> that was the smartest move I could have made. Probably one of the smartest moves you've ever made. Yeah, yeah, yep. Um, 
what what strikes me is you've been talking about Anton Chandor Lave and you've been we've been talking about Bunuel and we've also mentioned Dali. All those people who basically identify themselves as atheists. Do you consider yourself an atheist? I don't feel nearly confident enough about the reality that I'm existing in to to to, to be able to embrace atheism. Not at all. So I'm a uh, on on a, on a good day probably uh, on a good day probably uh, uh, agnostic. Uh -huh. um, but um, but uh, you know I I uh, I just don't know. And and uh, and I have my strong suspicions about anybody who does claim to know. Like people who know way too much about Star Wars, <laughs> you know. <laughs> maybe you have a both on that side. Yeah, you you have maybe a better basis for <laughs> to be if you're a Star Wars expert. That you probably have a better basis for that than anybody talking religion. But again, like the bloodlust. I mean, I felt things moving inside me, right? Um, but I can't I can't ascribe a school to them or a book of a book to them. Uh, I'm a big fan of Meister Eckhart, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but um, his commentaries on the Book of John have been life-changing for me, but I'm not going to, I just don't know. I don't know. What struck me is one of those titles or track titles um, on the new record, When God Uses a Rope. When God Used a Rope, yeah. Yeah, because basically it can be, you can use a rope in two ways, in yeah. a very helpful way if you're trying to... Oh, there are many ways you can use a rope, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You could also you could also use it in a very very bad and binding way. Yep. Um, how do you perceive religion as an institution, not religion as belief as a system of beliefs, but religion as an institution? Uh, okay. Well, you've this is a, you, this might be a good zag for other people, but in actual fact, this is this is. Um, this is not useful in this instance because this song is tied into very clearly in my mind to the oxbow song gal okay. um and and about something terrible that happened to me as a, as a, as, a, as a young man right um where uh you know you can read the lyrics for gal i'm not going to make you do that before you understand what i'm talking about but fundamentally i was tied uh, tied to a pole um and uh God used a rope to teach me a lesson that day, maybe, right? And, um, um, but, you know, the angle of attack, as it appears on Oxbow's record, uh, I think it was uh, Let Me Be a Woman, is very different than the angle of attack as it appears on uh, Killers Like Us. Um, so that's the way in which I would answer that. But religion as an institution is clearly just a, you know, it's a... Um, I mean, it's a it's a it's a profit center. Right? I mean, that's what we're talking about. It's a yeah, you know the, one of the one of the living popes. I forget which one recently just said, "I felt terrible for kind of." It's the German one. Yeah, yeah, for dropping the ball on the sex abuse thing. He said, "Oh, you feel terrible about it?" Yeah, I bet there are Francisco, lots of ink. Fra Francis. What is not Francis? It's um, John the Sixteenth. No, Benedict yeah. the Sixteenth. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. German uh, one. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So yeah, 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 your feelings of sorrow mean nothing to me, my friend, nothing at all. So yeah, uh, yeah it's just, it's just like I said, these people. I would be perfectly comfortable if you were to, um, um, <laughs> you can't, you can't, I, 
Yeah. I know what you mean. Um, you know, I used, I used to have an interest in being a priest myself when I was a young person. It just seemed like a noble calling. I'm talking about when I was like seven or eight, you know. The same and, with me. But my, my reason for that was I would only have to work once a week. <laughs> I never thought of that. Yeah. 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 I, uh, but I, I, it, it's a, it's a terrible, 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 terrible institution. And it, it pains me greatly in ways more significantly since nine 11, but in ways that are really comprehensive. Like I live in a, I live in a neighborhood um, that's a largely, uh, it's probably 60% Latino, you know, 20% Pacific Islander, um, you know, 10% white and the rest would be African-American, right? And so, but like four fifths of those people I just mentioned were people whose culture and the re religious underpinnings of their culture were completely decimated, destroyed, torn to shreds by this dominant culture. And I'm surrounded right now by about four or five different churches. And on Sunday, I see you know, these Latin families and they'll dress their kids up and they'll, you know, these once proud people are going into fucking Anglo churches. It just drives me. It's like, I, you know, I can't, I can't. How, how to, how to love the stick that beats you? I just don't understand it. You know, I, I, uh, okay. and same with, with Samoans and 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 uh, Pacific Island Tongans, Pacific Islanders. You know, those fucking missionaries got over there, and it's just. I don't know, I Did some of her best work? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're being very, very sarcastic. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I like. I just have to to um, clarify one thing that I really liked. I quote the new Bunuel record, and Jesus would come down to meet us, but for his own problems with the Machina and the Deus. That that is a a reference to the Deus S Deus ex Machina motif, right? Yeah. And yes, it is. <laughs> um, and another line that you used in one of your songs there, and everything is broken in here when we talk about death and death is so near. Is that the way that you see our world in early 2022? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the shame of it is, and, and, and the shame of it is, like most modern music initially begins it's a product of hysteria, you know, like, uh, I mean, you listen, to, you pick anybody, you know, Nirvana and, and these are, these are, you know, a young man's stories about becoming a young man, right? becoming, not being. And yeah. by the time that people get to be as old as I am, they're either successful, in which case they're in employment center, like Metallica, Rolling Stones, that people are relying on them to be reliably them, right? They come out and do Jack Flash, you know, yeah. be Shelter. You got to come out and do Master of Puppets. You got to confirm what I expect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but what I found is that the amount of agita in my head that's connected to purely existential thing is much more crucial than anything I could have ever imagine that 19 or 20 or 25 or even 35 you know I, I mean let me give you an example i'm uh watching my uh, 18 month old play in the sandbox or do something taking his shoes off about to get in the sandbox and i i realize <laughs> you know it's a 
beautiful California sunny afternoon, I realize that I'm mired in a certain kind of finitude. In other words, specifically, I'll never see this again, right? Like again, mm -hmm. like again. And, you know, we deal with it in a very fundamental way. Okay, there's an expectation that your parents will die. Well, what COVID has actually proven out, 25 known associates who died in the last 18 months. That I even, something I had not even gotten my head around this idea that, yeah, your parents will die. But you know who else is going to die? All of your fucking friends, you know? And at this point now, I've had exes die. And that's creepy as fuck, too, you know? So you Depends got the exes. on the relationship to your ex. What's that? Depending on the relationship to your ex. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that much is true. Um, so, uh, I mean, we, like, I, 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 in that piece that I wrote that, you know, I said America has become an abattoir, you know, but yeah. largely that's the planet we're on, man. Yeah, <laughs> no. And the only way that I've been able to sort of make my peace with this, this real existential dread and terror is to view, view this as this toilet bowl earth as a death star, <laughs> right? And that fundamentally getting off of it is escaping the eventual crash, mm -hmm. you know? So this is why horror movies fail to be horrifying to me because you're not hurting these people. You're freeing them from Ooh. what they talk about, the fate worse than death. Well, that's yeah. it, you know? So, um, yeah, and this, to try to capture this in a song or feeling or a sense or a body of work right now, I mean, you know, a lot of my famous favorite artists really turn, if you paid attention, really turned out great work as they got older. I mean, but, you know, some of them get ruined because success might ruin you, you know. Well, not last, my concern. <laughs> one, one last question before we come to our infamous quick fires. Uh, hey, is that a Canute that's... shirt you have on? Of course I do. Yeah, that's great. I've got one there too. Mine's yeah, I also see the German gig poster behind you that's that right. I only recognized because of the magazine logo, which right. was like the early, early, early Visions, days of Visions magazine. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. So last question before we come to the quickfire ones. Um, and I think that's also a very short one. Uh, for the cops on the mm -hmm. new record, is that your shout out? to all cops worldwide or just the ones in the U.S.? No, it, again, this is, you've gone too macro. This is very specifically micro because I discovered in a weird turn of events that uh, one of the guys I train with, train jujitsu with, is friends with the cop that arrested me the one time I was arrested and went to jail. Um, and, and this is the cop that was going to beat me up as I was naked in the jail cell. So I've been chasing an interview with him to see if he remembers that or just to kind of revisit, because I'm sure he does not expect no. that, you know, an arrest that he made in 1981 or 82 will come back in order to uh, talk to him about it. <laughs> That's a very specific, it's not a general story. That was a very no, specific. No, no. It's, it's also for me a very general thing because, you know, um, like, I think five or six years ago, I would have taken this as a shout out to American cops. Mm -hmm. But looking at the German police system at the moment, with mm -hmm. all the right wing 
subversion going on in our police ranks, I think mm -hmm. that is something where ACAB can really be used on all cops. So, well, you know, I've been stopped by cops. Um, weirdly enough, only in Nuremberg. <laughs> like, is that something? You know, I, I grew up in Cologne, like Western Germany, close yep. to the Dutch border. Yep. And I had two cops mm -hmm. control me three Sunday mornings in a row at the same corner in the same car that I was driving just because of the way I looked and just because I came from the West. I came off the, uh, the highway from the West, from wheat country Holland. Yep. And they thought, oh, yeah, he looks that way. He must have. Ah, that's great. Yeah. Well, no, listen, listen. I need to tell you that my experiences with German cops have been wonderful. I'm <laughs> <laughs> glad yours are. My comparison point, however, you have to understand. Ah, okay, yeah. Are California cops. Uh, uh, uh. And that's a very much of a drag of a story. But, I mean, there's one story that I got cops in the family. So my view is a little bit different. But I remember having cops pull guns on me when I was on the fight book tour. And I was in the, uh, in the Oklahoma panhandle, like so north of Texas. Yeah. And you guys come up. They're creeping up on my car. I can see them in the rearview mirror with their guns drawn. And I'm sitting, and I've got shorts on, and a, and maybe I'm shirtless even, right? So you can see the tattoos and everything. And, and they tap on the window with the gun, and they say, can I see your, your registration, please? And I say one word. I say, certainly. And they hear my voice, which connotes quite a lot, right? They hear my voice, and they... Uh, relax, put the guns away, and like, just give me some warning. Yeah, you were two miles over the speed, let me try to slow down. It's like they expected a certain type of black guy. And through my diction and how I spoke, they were like, oh, this is like an Obama black guy. Let, let him go, whatever. <laughs> but the funny thing is, I was high out of my mind and I had guns in the glove box. <laughs> I was like, that was absolutely, I was absolutely the person you should have been stopping, but I wasn't bothering anybody. And I was really just driving normally and they got mm -hmm. suspicious. And, but, um, you know, no, I only, only that one time the cops tried to beat me up or twice, actually, they tried to beat me up and they were both in California. And I swear to God, the first time I got stopped by cops in Nuremberg, I uh, almost, am almost 100% sure they were high almost 100% sure, you know, uh, and I would say if I had to pick, I would say that they had been smoking weed just based on their attitude and bearing, you know, um, and uh, I'll give you a few questions next and you can choose okay. one of the two alternatives. Okay. East Coast versus West Coast. Oh, man, I've lived in California longer than I ever lived in New York, but I still, if, if given an op, when I was in some souk in Jordan, Amman, and the Secret Service was following me, and they finally got me, and, and they were like, where are you from? I said, New York. <laughs> I figured that was going to save me, and fundamentally, I'm not, I don't really identify myself. I, I, I have an uncomfortable relationship to California, uh, okay. so I identify myself as a New Yorker. Dali versus Picasso. Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take Picasso. Okay. And I'm gonna tell you why. <laughs> um, when he he had a fractious relationship with his son, 
and they reconciled toward the end. And on his deathbed, his son came to his father and Picasso's in his deathbed and he looks up. I don't know whether the story is true or not, but for my purposes, I'm gonna say it's true. And he looks up at his son and he grabs his hand and goes, my son, you're young, I'm old. I wish you were dead. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I've got a terrible relationship with my father. I completely understood. It's I gotta go. I gotta give it to him for that. You know, don't let don't you don't don't you think for a second that death will change anything here. You know, so China. Uh, while you're drinking, I can tell a, a good German joke. We had like a very very famous actor who got like over a hundred and eight or a hundred and nine, and he had a much younger wife. And so one day, death is knocking on the door of their house, and the mm -hmm. actor goes and sees Steph standing outside and he just turns around and says honey it's for you <laughs> ah, i like that yeah I, I, it happened to a friend of mine who was in the hospital where he actually was in the dying in the bed and he saw death and he was like over there like as a joke kind of he's dying but he had a sense of humor but it wasn't funny when they found out hey what happened to the old man who was in there and that guy had actually died you know so <laughs> Chinatown versus L.A. Confidential. Oh, I'm going to have to go with L.A. Confidential. Okay. Um, just because I like Leonard. I, I like Leonard better. And yeah, yeah. So. It would be my say, very same reason. De Niro versus Pacino. Ooh, that's tough. That's a tough one. I'm going to have to go with Pacino. I would always choose De Niro, but we cannot agree I on, would, on but, everything. Yeah, but then you have to think about Meet the Fockers, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, don't say yeah like that's no big deal. That, he didn't do just no, one. I, I can take Ben Stiller sometimes. Oh, man. Uh, and then analyze this. And then, look, you know, he net. You look at Dog Day Afternoon. Or you uh, look at Serpico. You look, there's, you know. Uh, the he did some Bertolucci movies and he did the you know but there's been a greater breath I mean of course now Pacino's kind of become a caricature but when that starts to happen with him he typically du doubles back to theater and he'll go back to doing theater right and, and one also has to admit that the same thing happens to De Niro basically yeah yeah, Ma yeah. Marvel versus DC oh easy Marvel yeah sorry yeah although I must admit that the trailer for the new Batman with Pattinson looks amazing. Well, I think Pattinson's a fucking genius. Yeah, um, apart yeah. from Twilight. Yeah, yeah. well, Twilight is what caused me to dismiss him, but the Safdie Brothers film that he was in caused me to go, oh, shit. He is a really good actor. One month yeah, like yeah, yeah. Poetry versus prose. Uh, prose, mm -hmm. And last one in light of yesterday's events. I know you're not a big football fan, no. but the halftime show I think was great. And I gotta ask, Dre or M? Oh, Dre. But even though I have to say I don't, I don't like guys who beat women. But um... but then you dismiss fifty percent of all hip hoppers. <laughs> Professional athletes, rock and rollers. You know, uh, I. I the numbers of men who, who that you know Arthur Miller I mean the numbers of men who haven't beat you know Sean Connery you know the the, the list goes on of men who beaten and would I always kinda, 
but I, what I will never understand for my life is how really intelligent people, I mean, like you've just mentioned a few, like really intelligent people can do that to the woman or to the person they love. I don't get it. But yeah, it's blown. And people would think based on, you know, me with the martial arts and the whole thing. But, you know, I, I've never I've never hit a partner, you know, I mean, who, who didn't ask me for. It. I mean, you know, I'm talking, there's a difference between sex play where somebody is like, yeah, I think we should. <laughs> and that's when God used the rope. <laughs> that can be part of it. Yeah, there's a difference between sex play and, and then just out of control violence. Oh, fuck, that's disgusting to me. Yeah, no. I, I will, as I said, I will never understand it for the life of me. What I do understand and what I have to tell everybody who's listening to this right now, if you have, this will come out as after the record has been released. And if you have not listened to Bunuel's new record, Killers Like Us, if you haven't done so by now, you have to change that. Uh, mm -hmm. Not only for the handsome gentleman that I had the pleasure of talking to for an hour, but also because the record is a a wonderful blitzkrieg attack on your nerves and sensory feelings. And you know, I, I largely feel the same way because I do the vocals. No, seriously, I do the vocals and then I don't hear it until like you, it's finished. So, so I'm listening like, oh, it's like, it is like a frightening to me as well. So, Eugene, thank you very, very much. And I wish you a perfect day in a hopefully sunny San Francisco. Nah, it's cloudy today, but I, I got to go to work, so it won't make a difference to me anyway. So, so take care, but man. Bye-bye. Th th thanks for taking the time.